comments myself and uh, let Lauren do the talking here. Uh, our presentation is for, uh, we have a time of about two hours, including Lauren's presentation, our questions and answers. Following this, there will be a one and a half hour dinner break. There's food available here, uh, or you can go elsewhere in the neighborhood. There is a talk from seven to nine with Bashkar uh, uh, Sukara and uh, Paul Heidemann from Jacobin Magazine on technology and socialist strategy. I'm, from this point, I'm giving the mic right over here to Lauren and let's get going. Can we move that stand back over here so I can? Hi, everybody. Thank you for turning out today. Um, <clears throat> as Michael just said, I'm Lauren Goldner. Uh, <clears throat> some of you may know me as a co-editor of the online journal Insurgent Notes uh, on the uh, little, sorry? Uh, I'll try, but <clears throat> uh, it's going to be hard for me to say. You, you can't hear me? No. OK. Remind me when I put it down to my side, which I tend to do. That's why I put it on the stand. But OK. Um, <clears throat> so I'll start over again. I'm Lauren Goldner. I'm co-editor of the online journal Insurgent Notes. Uh, I've handed out a chronology of what I'm going to be talking about, which has the URL of my website, Break Their Haughty Power, as well as the URL of <clears throat> Insurgent Notes and my email address if you want to send me comments. Uh, criticisms afterwards. Uh, before we really get going, uh, I was told that the, some of the writing on this map is a little sketchy. I tried to make it as clear as possible, but let me just quickly go over uh, the geography that I will mainly be talking about. First of all, of course, this is China and the major cities <coughs> that <coughs> will be coming up periodically. Beijing, the capital, uh, Shanghai, which is right here on the coast, <coughs> and uh, Hong Kong and Shenzhen, the very important uh, special economic zone that was set up in the early 1980s when China decided to open up to foreign investment in a big way. <coughs> uh, and then Guangzhou, which is the capital of Guangdong province, which is probably the most important part <coughs> of the Chinese uh, economic expansion <coughs> going back to the early 1980s. Uh, <coughs> and then, just for sort of geographical reference, uh, Japan, <coughs> North and South Korea, uh, Taiwan, <coughs> Vietnam, India, and then within China itself, well, this may be controversial, Xinjiang province, which is a <coughs> largely Muslim province, which is being uh, rapidly settled by the Han population. That's the main ethnic <coughs> Chinese group, which is about 93% of the total population of China, which at the moment is 1.4 billion, approximately. <coughs> and then here is Tibet. <coughs> and uh, some other important cities, uh, Chongqing, uh, which used to be known in English as Chongqing, uh, probably the largest city in the world at the moment. It has over 30 million people. 
and <coughs> it was recently the site of the fall of a very important high-level party official <coughs> named Boji Lai. Um, and I think that's about it <coughs> for <coughs> geography. I'm, <coughs> I'm sorry if <coughs> my handwriting is a little problematic, but I'll be pointing to the different places as we go along. Uh, I'm not a, by any means a China expert. I did live in South Korea for four years where I became very involved with the Korean working class movement. This was between 2005 and 2009. <coughs> and of course, in the milieu of uh, working class militants, <coughs> uh, I found, of course, many people very interested in what was going on in China and very <coughs> struck by some parallels between what happened in South Korea from the 1970s up to the 1990s. <coughs> of course, South Korea has 40 or 50 million people. China, as I said, has 1.4 billion. So, <coughs> and of course, they're very different in certain ways. But what they have in common was a long period of very rapid growth under what we could say is an authoritarian <coughs> development regime which led to, in 1987 in South Korea, a working class explosion <coughs> that <coughs> really, in some ways, blew up the foundations of the development dictatorship and led to a transition <coughs> to a more open democracy. And along with that, the beginning of the downsizing and breaking up <coughs> of the previous uh, economic development <coughs> in South Korea which had been going along at 8 to 10% a year, just as China, until recently, has been moving along at about 10% a year, <coughs> at least according to certain figures. OK, so <coughs> I would like to sort of end, begin at the end, and then circle back and talk about historically how things <coughs> got to where they are in China today. <coughs> I would say that China, as part of the world capitalist economy, <coughs> is, of course, deeply enmeshed in and <coughs> influenced by the crisis of the world capitalist economy. <coughs> uh, we noticed about three weeks ago that the Chinese stock market uh, lost uh, $3 trillion of market capitalization in uh, three weeks, <coughs> about 40%. <coughs> It has recovered somewhat by a massive state intervention. I find it rather hilarious to read the commentary, the Eng English language commentary on this state intervention saying, oh, this just proves that <coughs> they haven't made the full transition to the market as though the US government didn't spend $700 billion in 2008, didn't take virtually all the steps <coughs> that the Chinese government and central bank have taken, with some exceptions. <coughs> so um, it's def definitely right in there. <coughs> um, I would say, broadly speaking, and this is the core of what I'm going to be talking about, is that the, the Chinese <coughs> model of capitalist development is now, and for some time, has been in a very serious blockage. This blockage is just part of the blockage of world capitalism that's been going on for quite some time. 
But in China, it has, <laughs> as they say, special characteristics. <coughs> and the way in which this is going to uh, <coughs> sort of work out will definitely involve the question of the working class. Now, there are very, various international models that have uh, influenced China in some way or another. <coughs> Let's start with the one that is kind of the nightmare of the Chinese regime, <coughs> and that's the Polish Solidarność explosion of 1980-81. <coughs> it's been studied very carefully, as has <coughs> the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, as kind of <coughs> a model to be avoided. And <coughs> what really is con of concern <coughs> to the top levels of the Chinese state, of course, is that Solidarność <coughs> ultimately, over a nine-year period from 1980 to 1989, broke <coughs> the political monopoly of the ruling Communist Party and opened up a Pandora's box of different kinds of <coughs> truly independent political parties and very quickly led to the dismantling <coughs> of the <coughs> so-called socialist regime that had <coughs> been in place there for 40 years after that time. Um, China has many think tanks, and these think tanks <coughs> uh, have studied eight or 10 or even a dozen <coughs> models from around the world that have influenced what has gone on there. Uh, <coughs> let's start with, well, as I, as I said, <coughs> the collapse of the Eastern European bloc, <coughs> the collapse of the Soviet Union, was something that <coughs> was very much on the minds of the ruling circles, <coughs> particularly because it occurred 1989 to 1991, exactly at the same time as the famous Tiananmen <coughs> confrontation with the state. And <coughs> I'll come back to that, but I just want to quickly say that <coughs> as in many cases with uh, disruption and revolt and confrontation, uh, in the West, <coughs> the way in which the West views China, uh, <coughs> uh, it was viewed, Tiananmen was viewed primarily as a student uprising. But in fact, it was <coughs> a student and worker uprising with more and more working class participation as the, <coughs> as it, as the crisis got to its culmination in very early June 1989. Uh, and it wasn't only in China, it was not only in Beijing, it was in a number of cities around China <coughs> where uh, popular crowds attacked the People's Liberation Army when it was trying to come into the cities and <coughs> put up different kinds of resistance. In, in Beijing, most directly, uh, <coughs> several tanks were destroyed by crowds and <clears throat> there was a lot of street fighting with people killed on both sides. When the PLA finally <clears throat> was ordered to take over Tiananmen, the main square in the heart of Beijing, <clears throat> the first thing they did was to head for the tents of the worker organizations that had set up there <clears throat> in the last days of the crisis. And this is a theme that we'll come back to, that again and again, at different turning points, <clears throat> in the development of the PRC, the People's Republic of China, uh, workers have played 
a much <coughs> understudied role as far as Western commentary <coughs> is concerned. So basically <coughs> what I see is a situation in which, <coughs> uh, <coughs> as, they use, as they say classically, <coughs> the ruling class <coughs> can no longer rule as it did before and the <coughs> subordinate classes and particularly the working class can no longer tolerate <coughs> what has gone before. And <coughs> the question, it's a very large and complicated question, is what is going to replace <coughs> the current model? This has been an open issue in China since at least 2008 when the world financial crisis, particularly the crisis centered in the United States, kind of uh, undermined <coughs> the previous Chinese development model of heavy, uh, massive exports to the West, <coughs> and above all to the United States. That, that was kind of, <coughs> you know, that a curtain came down on that phase of accumulation. And <coughs> ever since that time, the Chinese state has been spinning its wheels and looking for the next step. And generally speaking, if you follow the mainstream Western press, the next step is <coughs> supposed to be a consumer-oriented <coughs> a consumer-oriented new phase of accumulation there that would <coughs> uh, be based on raising wages and opening up more opportunities for the <coughs> middle classes in China. I'll return to the problems with that outlook uh, towards the end. But let me now uh, go back uh, to 1949 and sort of trace out the way in which China <coughs> got to the situation it's in. <coughs> 1949, in my opinion, <coughs> was what I call in my little chronology a bourgeois revolution with red flags. Now, what do I mean by that? <coughs> Basically, <coughs> bourgeois revolutions classically going back to the French Revolution, are <coughs> revolutions that destroy the pre-capitalist <coughs> class in agriculture. This happened in France, this happened in Russia, it happened in China. <coughs> Between 1949 and 1952, about two million landlords, various definitions, were, <coughs> well, they were expropriated. Uh <coughs> and from that point on, because the regime, the new regime under the Communist Party, uh, nationalized all land, and to this day, all land in China is nationalized. If you want to build a house or have a farm or <coughs> a golf course, you lease the land from the state. It is not your property. <coughs> um, very important to keep that in mind. The uh, initial phase I, you know, and there's great controversy over the nature of China. <clears throat> some of you may be familiar with it. Some people say it was state capitalist, or is state capitalist, is becoming state capitalist. Other people call it state socialism. Other people call it bureaucratic collectivism. <clears throat> uh, and these debates have been going on for a very long time, and I don't intend to get into them unless people want to in the question and answer period. <clears throat> But let's just say that, broadly speaking, all of these analyses agree that what was established in 1949 was a new class society in which 
what I characterize as a transition to capitalism, a transition in which part of the bureaucratic elite of the party was a capitalist class in formation. Now, <clears throat> the metaphor that I use for the early period, oh, let me just briefly sketch out, from 1949 to about 1956, 57, uh, <clears throat> a lot of capitalists who had already existed before the revolution were allowed to continue functioning. Uh, a lot of uh, small and medium-sized enterprises were tolerated. But it's starting in 1956-57 that the regime really moved towards a much more regimented bureaucratic model. <clears throat> model from where? From the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had a tremendous impact on the early <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> formation of the Chinese party and the Chinese party in power. Tens of thousands of Chinese party cadre had been educated in the Soviet Union. Soviet advisors were all over the place in the early period. Uh, and basically what was implemented there was something quite similar to the <coughs> Stalinist bureaucratic model that had <coughs> taken over in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. So now, of course, China being China, not the same country, <coughs> different conditions in certain ways. But you know, a certain number of things uh, that China had in common with the Soviet Union. First of all, a massive peasantry. <clears throat> uh, at the time, 1949, about 80% of the population lived on the land. Today, it's 50%. <clears throat> so there's been a gradual urbanization, although you have to be careful <clears throat> using that term because it includes about 270 million migrant workers who are not really settled anywhere. Uh, this is something that is very important to understand how the Chinese regime works. There is a, a, a residence permit called the Huko, which is <coughs> something that is issued at birth <coughs> that basically gives you rights to social services, housing, et cetera, whatever the state provides in your place of birth. And these 270 million migrant workers today in China, their hukou is in the village where they came from, out in the far provinces. So there's a constant instability there. <clears throat> the hukou has been very important in controlling the relationship between the country and the city. In the last 10 or 15 years, I understand it has been uh, loosened up a lot. <clears throat> and a lot of migrant workers have manage to get the hukou in the cities they live in. But nonetheless, it's still there. It's still very important, and above all, was very important in the past. Now, in 1956-57, there was the first crisis in the Chinese regime. And it was a part of a crisis of the world communist movement, <coughs> characterized, as I'm sure most of you know, by Khrushchev's speech <clears throat> to the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, by the Hungarian Revolution, and by the so-called Polish October, which shook <clears throat> the regime in Poland. In <clears throat> Hungary, it was an out-and-out -out overthrow of the regime 
which was crushed a few weeks later <coughs> by a Soviet military intervention. But as with Solidarność, 15 years later, <coughs> 25 years later, the <coughs> regime in China studied those events very carefully, <coughs> knowing full well that <coughs> the conditions for such a revolt existed in China as well. And guess what? <coughs> in 1956-57, you had the first strike wave of any importance since 1949. Uh, <coughs> again, as with later, as with Tiananmen in 1989, the, <coughs> uh, <coughs> the Western focus was all on the intellectuals. There was Mao's famous 100 flowers opening up the criticism. Uh, <coughs> it rapidly turned into flood of criticism far beyond what had been expected. And <coughs> then Mao kind of turned and <coughs> uh, arrested a lot of people, crushed the movement. He said, oh yes, the hundred flowers, that was, that was letting the snakes out of their holes so we could <coughs> you know, beat them down even better. But <coughs> what was less publicized in the West uh, <coughs> was a simultaneous intensification of strikes in Chinese industry, above all in Shanghai. And Shanghai historically has been the center, or was the center, <coughs> of <coughs> the Chinese working class with real traditions going back to the 19-teens and 1920s. Nonetheless, the regime stabilized <coughs> and continued, uh, well, <coughs> I should say, the next step was from 1958 to 1961, the so-called Great Leap Forward. <coughs> Great Leap Forward was a hyper-voluntaristic attempt, as Mao put it, to uh, catch up with uh, England <coughs> and several other Western countries in some very short period of time. I don't remember exactly what it was. But what it came down to was a massive movement in the countryside in which uh, peasants <coughs> who are now in communes uh, were uh, boiling down, uh, melting down the family heirlooms and working around the clock <coughs> to uh, greatly expand agricultural production. And what happened? What happened was a famine in key agricultural regions of China <coughs> in which, depending on whose estimate you want to accept, between 20 and 40 million people died. <coughs> The Great Leap Forward was a colossal failure. And Mao took heavy criticism inside the party from members of the party elite <coughs> for this failure. And <coughs> according to the sources that I rely on, Mao was essentially, as I say in my little outline, kicked upstairs, kept as a figurehead, too important to <coughs> remove. But nonetheless, real power devolved fully to what you might call the technocratic wing of the party, the people educated in the Soviet Union, the people who wanted to follow the Soviet model, <coughs> and Mao and his faction were marginalized. <coughs> um, not too long afterwards, in 1965-66, you had the beginnings of the so-called Cultural Revolution. Now, I don't like the term Cultural Revolution, because it had nothing to do with culture and it wasn't a revolution. <laughs> but <coughs> um, it was a faction fight at the top of the party. It was an attempt 
by Mao and his faction to regain power. And the so-called capitalist rotors, the Lu Shaoqi faction, the people who were widely attacked in propaganda, um, <clears throat> you know, were this very same Soviet-educated wing of the party. And I would say that by and large, you know, the Cultural Revolution lasted for 10 years. But the mass mobilizations associated with the Cultural Revolution were basically over by 1969. But <clears throat> it's very important to keep in mind that <clears throat> uh, during the Cultural Revolution, workers began to <clears throat> revolt, not against uh, Lu Shaoqi, but against both factions at the top of the party. And <clears throat> Mao, in 1967, shortly after this all got started, sent the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, into Shanghai and elsewhere to put an end <clears throat> to these disturbances and pull things out. <clears throat> Nonetheless, the result in the short term was the triumph of Mao and the, so the people who later became the Gang of Four, including Zhang Jing, <clears throat> Mao's wife, or <clears throat> I guess partner, as one would say today. Um, <clears throat> and they essentially ruled up until 1976. Now, it's important to note, and I just put this down briefly, <clears throat> all universities were closed in China for 10 years. <clears throat> uh, 17 million youth <clears throat> from the cities, many of them university students, were sent down to the country uh, to work <clears throat> in agriculture, uh, <clears throat> learn from the peasants, teach the peasants, uh, overcome the gap between mental and manual labor, and there's a very interesting book I just came across recently talking about what happened to these 17 million people who essentially became a lost generation in China. <clears throat> Many of them were not allowed to return to the cities for, uh, for 10 years, till 1976, at which time <clears throat> they were, some were able to resume their university studies, but most didn't. Many of them uh, wound up doing petty petty tempor temporary work. Others wound up in juvenile, you know, well, no longer juvenile, but in gangs. Uh, there was a whole raft of <clears throat> possibilities or block possibilities. Many of them escaped to Hong Kong. It's a very common thing, particularly for anyone who was lucky enough to be uh, rustified down here in southwest China to <clears throat> swim over to Hong Kong and start a new life. But in my opinion, the Cultural Revolution took a great toll on Chinese <coughs> society. And <coughs> if you go to China today, uh, <coughs> you'll meet most people. When they talk to you, will say, oh, how, how do you do this? Is, my name is so-and-so. Oh, and the Cultural Revolution was a terrible time in China. This is the official line. And I would say there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, the official line of the party is that Mao was 70% right and 30% wrong, the 30% being <coughs> the Great Leap Forward and <coughs> the Cultural Revolution. And uh, I, when I've, I've met many young Chinese <coughs> since I <coughs> came back from South Korea, and uh, most of them know absolutely nothing about that time. It's not taught in schools. It's not talked about in families, by and large. It's just <coughs> a kind of huge 
blank space in people's understanding of how China got to where it is. Okay. Cultural Revolution ended in 1976. Mao died. Zhou Enlai, his number two <coughs> colleague, also died. I point out there that at Zhou's funeral in the spring of 1976, 200,000 people turned out in Beijing in what was essentially an anti-Gang of Four demonstration. <coughs> and around the same time, a democracy wall was established in Beijing covered with these bright <coughs> uh, <coughs> multicolored posters called Da Zibao, poster. <coughs> um, and uh, there was a very lively debate going on. And <coughs> during that time, there was a faction fight happening between the re-urbanized <coughs> people, the party elite who had been sent down to do <coughs> farm labor, during the Cultural Revolution, who gradually came back to power in 1978. Headed, of course, by Deng Xiaoping, who <coughs> ruled until the early 1990s and was essentially the architect of the new Chinese economy. This was essentially the return to power of the technocratic elite that had lost power during the Cultural Revolution. <coughs> um, <coughs> Things got out of hand with the democracy wall. It was shut down <coughs> when uh, some people started, you know, Deng had talked about the four modernizations, modernization of industry, agriculture, education, and science. And <coughs> many people started talking about the fifth modernization, democracy, whatever they meant by that. And this was not welcome, and the democracy wall was shut down. <coughs> China was into a new period. and. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know how much detail I can go into. Uh, I think I should probably pay a little attention to the time. Um, <clears throat> but as we all know, this new phase from an economic point of view was tremendously su successful. Uh, China <clears throat> grew according to official figures and most generally accepted figures at about an average of 10% a year from the early uh, 1980s up until recently when it started to slow down. Now, <clears throat> when we look at those figures, we really have to keep in mind a couple of other things. First of all is the environmental destruction <clears throat> that went along with that, uh, which is enormous. Uh, everyone has heard about the, the uh, perennial smog in Beijing. <clears throat> the health hazards created by that, <coughs> the uh, poisoning of <coughs> water, the poisoning of food that periodically has erupted in scandals. So <coughs> if we uh, start to deduct the uh, <coughs> total cost to, uh, let's say, infrastructure and the environment, that 10% annual growth is probably you know, seriously reduced. But nonetheless, Whatever one wants to say about it, it's been very impressive and unprecedented in the history of capitalism. Of course, it depended on 200 years of earlier <coughs> industrial development, but nonetheless, quite something. So it went through a number of periods. <coughs> Probably the most important thing to understand what ultimately happened is the way in which <coughs> in, 19, in the early 1980s, the regime opened up 
uh, free markets in, for agricultural produce, starting in a couple of provinces. <coughs> and then short, within very few years, uh, they were, China was kind of overwhelmed by a 500% increase in the production of food in certain, in certain areas. And Deng Xiaoping himself said, uh, this was not our plan, it just happened. As soon as the peasants <coughs> you know, were no longer <coughs> On the commune, in the communes, <clears throat> but uh, free to sell on an open market, agricultural <clears throat> production exploded. Uh, <clears throat> similar things happened in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, but nothing on that scale. I think by the end of the Soviet Union, 1% of land which was allowed <clears throat> to peasants for their own private uh, <clears throat> production produced 25% of all food that re reached the cities. And <clears throat> I uh, bang on about agriculture because it's very important, obviously, when one wants to think about how is the working class being fed. <clears throat> and cheap food from the countryside everywhere has always been A, B, C in terms of getting an industrial working class and industrial production off the ground. <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> then came 1989, Tiananmen, and the revolt that I talked about earlier. Now, <clears throat> the uh, initial phase of the opening up of China uh, did produce pretty serious inflation by the late 1980s, and a lot of discontent. Although the regime had not yet moved to seriously privatize either <clears throat> uh, industry or the rest of society. And so that is certainly the main, one of the main things in the background of the massive participation of workers in what started out as a student protest. Now, as I'm sure most of you know, the party was really split <coughs> about what to do about, about this. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> from what I've been able to gather, <coughs> it was really when large numbers of workers started coming to Tiananmen Square that the regime decided it's, uh, it's, time for, it's time for real repression. And that's what happened. It happened not just in Beijing, but in several other cities. But as I wanted to point out, there, were street fight there was street fighting all over Beijing and in a number of other cities and hardly <coughs> dominated by students. The repression was heavy enough that <coughs> things were basically shut down in China for two or three years. Western government you know, threw up their hands and said, what is this? this is, we thought that they had moved away from authoritarianism <coughs> and Western firms cut back their investments. But <coughs> after a few years, let's let bygones be bygones. And <coughs> the whole thing was resumed. Now, one thing I jumped over is in the 1970s, <clears throat> when the United States and China began to have serious relations, starting with Nixon's famous visit to Beijing in 1972, uh, there was mutual interest on both sides. <clears throat> the Western economies and the US economy in particular were moving into a period of crisis. <clears throat> At the same time, the idea, <clears throat> and later the possibility, of mass cheap goods from Asia <clears throat> as a way of compensating for falling worker wages in the West was very attractive to
to the Western elite and particularly to the American elite. Now, I haven't found any check stubs or <coughs> written out documents from the early 70s spelling all this out, but it's what happened. Basically, the whole phenomenon of Walmart <coughs> full of Chinese imports to the United States <coughs> uh, as a kind of cushion against falling real wages in the United States was, was in some sense, it was the core of the agreement. <clears throat> so 1990s, the boom resumes. And now we get into this period where worker unrest becomes very important in a form that is <clears throat> more appropriate to understanding the current situation. Uh, I mentioned 1992, an initial strike wave <clears throat> that was happening. Uh, <clears throat> one thing that's, let me out step back and <clears throat> use this map a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, enterprise, the, the free enterprise, the special enterprise zones, SEZs, uh, were begun in the 1980s, I believe. And <clears throat> the most important one was in this little town called Shenzhen. Uh, in 1980, Shenzhen had about 30,000 people. Uh, today, it has about 10 million people. It's just an enormous <clears throat> urban uh, agglomeration with 40-story high-rise buildings, one after another. Uh, and these uh, special enterprise zones, I'm not sure about now. When I was in, traveling in China in 1997, Shenzhen <coughs> was uh, closed off by a 30-foot-high barbed wire fence. I happened to arrive in Shenzhen on a bus of <coughs> peasants who were going to work for Shenzhen. Everybody needed a special permit. And the bus stopped at that <coughs> very high barbed wire fence. Police or military came on, very carefully checking everybody's visas or <coughs> permits to go to Shenzhen. The point being that <coughs> it was a very popular destination because everybody knew that uh, wages in Shenzhen, <coughs> while they may be bad, there was abundant work that was <coughs> open to anybody who managed to get there. So Shenzhen took off <coughs> uh, like almost no other part of the country. Uh, there were a couple of other <coughs> uh, <coughs> special enterprise zones along the coast. I'll get to another one in Shijiang province in a minute. Um, Well, uh, Hong Kong up until 1997 was a British colony that then reverted to China. You can step on the subway in Hong Kong and go to Shenzhen. I mean, they're just, you know, it's Brooklyn and Manhattan. <coughs> um, but, you know, of course, you have to go through Chinese customs and visas and so on. So, you know, the real action <coughs> in the Chinese economic boom is primarily along the coast. Although out here in the west, in Chongqing and some other places, it's also uh, <coughs> taking place and more and more because as worker unrest increases in the coastal areas, more and more firms are relocating out here <coughs> to cheaper labor markets in the west. Um, <coughs> it's also interesting. One, it's something that I learned <coughs> not too long ago, I mean, when getting into this study, uh, <coughs> that 
a, a surprisingly large amount of <coughs> land in China is not, is not uh, it's, it's not arable. It's not uh, <coughs> useful for cultivation. So actually, if I understand correctly, the United States actually has more arable land than China. <coughs> so, <coughs> and this is also becoming another problem because <coughs> as industry grows and cities grow, all kinds of land is eaten up in the countryside, <coughs> uh, cutting back again the land that can be used for food production. So, as I'm sure most of you know, China has been reaching out <coughs> all over the world, and especially in Africa, <coughs> buying up land, making contracts with different countries for food imports, and <coughs> trying to assure a steady, a steady supply of both food and uh, energy, above all oil. <coughs> uh, <coughs> so, but nonetheless, you know, this is where the working class has been concentrated. This is where the class struggle has really been the sharpest. Now, I mentioned a strike wave that started in 1992, went on until about 1994, in response to the first real pressures of the privatization program. <coughs> now, one really important thing to keep in mind is that there are really two working classes in China. There's the old working class, <coughs> from the so-called SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, <coughs> who are largely or were largely concentrated up here in the northeast, the area that used to be known as Manchuria. <coughs> now I think we just call it the northeast. And then there's the new working class, <coughs> which is made up of <coughs> hundreds of millions of people coming in off the land, either forced off the land as their <coughs> little farms become unviable or coming off the land because <laughs> nobody wants to stay down on the farm forever and life in the city seems very appealing. This is now just becoming a serious problem in China because for the first time that <coughs> apparently bottomless source of labor power out in the countryside is starting to be exhausted and <coughs> above all, through the experience of work in different parts of the dynamic zones, <coughs> you've got a new maturing working class that is not in contrast, say, to the 1980s when there were still lots of people just off the farm who were willing to work for very low wages and take orders and not be uppity and subordinate. That, that's, that era seems to be over. I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, the really interesting working class actions start after 1995. <coughs> um, and the 1997 Party Congress, uh, Jiang Zemin, who was then the Prime Minister, announced one million, one, sorry, 100 million layoffs for the coming period of the new, <coughs> of the new economic restructuring. That, that's almost as many people who were in the U.S. workforce at that time. <clears throat> now, where did those layoffs happen? Ultimately, I think it was only 60 or 70 million. And guess what? They happened up here, <coughs> primarily in the Northeast, uh, where the <coughs> state-owned <coughs> enterprises were dominant. This was the old, classic industrial zone of China. It had industrialized already in the 20s, 
It was taken over and further developed by the Japanese in the 30s and 40s. And then when <coughs> the pro-Soviet technocrats took over, they continued to work here, you know, very much oriented towards heavy industry. And <coughs> by the 1990s, a lot of these factories <coughs> and the oil industry up here that became PetroChina with the help of Goldman Sachs <coughs> uh, were pretty antiquated. And so the bulk of the layoffs hit this area. And <clears throat> one needs to understand what a shock this was because <clears throat> for anyone who's worked for 10, 15, 20 or more years in one place to suddenly be handed a pink slip is pretty upsetting. And <clears throat> the almost immediate response to these layoffs were riots, <clears throat> marches, some strikes all over this area. Unfortunately, most of them not very successful. They were successful often in getting the actual severance pay that they were supposed to get, although in many cases that didn't happen. The managers of many of these plants simply looted the assets of the plants in order to set up the plant on a new basis as an independent enterprise. Um, but by and large, the people who lost their jobs up here were forced ultimately <coughs> to migrate down to the more dynamic zones and take a serious cut in their overall situation. Now, let me just backtrack a minute and explain what that was <coughs> in the 1950s and 1960s. As a worker in China under the Maoist <coughs> regime, uh, you were part of something called the Danwei which is a labor unit. <coughs> and everything, you know, it was essentially a cradle to grave, guaranteed living situation. <coughs> Wages were not anything to write home about, but uh, it went along with health plan, housing, social insurance, and anything else you'd care to mention. Now, the Chinese working class at the time of <coughs> the Communist Party takeover in 1949 was five million people and their dependents. So, you know, not much bigger than the Chinese working class of the 1920s, which had been so militant and <coughs> really seemed at times on the verge of <coughs> leading a revolution. But that's another story in the past we can get back to. <coughs> a very small percentage of the population, but they had the Danwei, and this continued. Uh, <coughs> with the control of migration from the countryside with the hukou, residence permit, uh, it was just a gradual growth of <coughs> urban population and urban working class. Now, <coughs> one thing that really has to be emphasized in today, for today is that when one says working class, <coughs> uh, this may conjure up uh, pictures of images of the old working class in the United States or Western Europe, people with steady employment, re relatively high pay, etc. And then the fact is that <coughs> there's not really much of that in China. <coughs> that what there is is a huge casualized population <coughs> that moves in and out of industry or other jobs. And <coughs> of course, it is not only industry, but now and for some time, there have been many, many small businesses and <coughs> what are called TVEs or uh, town and village enterprises, some of which have been very successful. 
So <clears throat> uh, this is not the formation of a new working class as it existed in Europe or the United States up until the 1960s or 70s. <clears throat> but much more churning, much more temp work. For example, in uh, I believe in 2004, a uh, national labor law <clears throat> was passed that made it almost impossible to lay off any worker who had been through two contracts in the place they worked. Now that was not many people <coughs> in the first place, and the main response of different companies of different sizes was to move to, guess what, outsourcing and <coughs> casualization of other workers. So uh, <coughs> as with everything, that, you know, I mean, China, like the Soviet Union, in 1936 at the height of the Stalinist terror, the Soviet the constitution was on paper one of the freest in the world. Uh, <coughs> you know, there, there's always this little matter of enforcement. And <coughs> in China, a lot of very good labor laws are just simply ignored. I'll give some examples. <coughs> um, there's uh, the constitution or labor law provides for a 40-hour week. Now, not too many people have the 40-hour week. Usually, it's more like a 50-hour week, <coughs> and in some cases, m much more than that. Uh, let me talk about probably the most famous case of the new Chinese working class, which is the <coughs> uh, explosion of suicides at Foxconn. Uh, you know, <coughs> everybody who's sitting here with Apple <coughs> equipment, cell phones, iPods, computers, to keep in mind <coughs> that those things are mass produced by one million Foxconn employees <coughs> uh, scattered around different parts of China. But of course, like most industry, most new investment concentrated here down in Guangzhou, Guangzhou province. Um, <coughs> The work conditions at Foxconn were so intolerable <coughs> that you know, this involved very long working day, <coughs> uh, lots of uh, compulsory overtime, uh, lots of uh, wage theft, uh, <coughs> you know, just everything that one associates with the new uh, Dickensian capitalism of the last <coughs> uh, 30 or 40 years. And Finally, in 2000, in the spring of 2010, 20 Foxconn workers tried to commit suicide, jumping off of various high buildings. Everybody, of course, who works at Foxconn lives in a dormitory, which is as strictly regimented as the workplace itself. <coughs> I think ultimately, 14 people died. Foxconn re responded by <coughs> putting uh, nets uh, high up on the buildings to prevent further suicides. And there was such a wave of international publicity about this. This is really putting a spotlight on the new uh, Chinese economy <coughs> that uh, Foxconn <coughs> uh, responded by raising wages. Uh, they were announced to be a 30% increase. The reality was more like 10%. I put the figures <coughs> on the chronology, I think. Uh, a typical Foxconn worker after this wave of suicides was making <coughs> uh, something in the vicinity of uh, 2,000 yuan a month, which is <coughs> something 
close to $200. That's for a 10-hour day. Uh, that's a monthly payment for a 10-hour day with four days off a month. And by standards of Guangdong province, that's not too bad <coughs> because in the smaller <coughs> towns and smaller enterprises, the enforcement of labor laws uh, gets <coughs> murkier and murkier as you move <coughs> away from the well-publicized big firms. Now, <coughs> that's another thing that I want to emphasize, which is uh, so far, even though there's more and more open discontent in China, the state bureaucracy has been very successful in keeping all this resistance localized. I mentioned <coughs> that last year there were over 100,000 incidents in China. <coughs> that includes, I mean, the figures vary. I've seen anything from about 1,200 to uh, 12,000 strikes out of those 100,000 incidents. I'm not sure, but <clears throat> uh, the bulk of them in any case are riots <clears throat> in small and medium-sized towns that resu uh, result from, you know, the classic case is <clears throat> peasants whose land is seized by the local party officials to build a golf course, to build a luxury of, of hotel, to build luxury housing or whatever <clears throat> with miserable compensation, if any. And <clears throat> so a riot ensues. Sometimes the compensation is increased, sometimes not. But the point is that uh, so far in terms of the developing of a general consciousness, <clears throat> uh, as I understand, the, <clears throat> the, uh, the hostility is primarily oriented towards the local authorities. And <clears throat> the regime, on the other hand, at the national level, has, you know, talks, talks good. I mean, they, you know, yes, we have to enforce these labor laws. No, this is terrible. <clears throat> now, as you know, with the new leadership that took power <clears throat> in uh, 2012, and particularly <clears throat> the prime minister, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, <clears throat> they've been carrying out a very fierce anti-corruption struggle in China itself. Now, I haven't seen good, uh, <coughs> a good analysis of what factions <coughs> are involved in this in any. <coughs> I can't believe that it's just a random walk of who gets arrested. Uh, not too long ago, the former head of the state security police, a uh, former member of the Central Committee, was arrested and executed after his trial. So it reaches up pretty high and of course also reaches down low. <coughs> but this is part of the legitimation crisis that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, <coughs> the, the, the awareness of corruption is, you know, corruption is so pervasive that the awareness of it is extremely pervasive. One of the things that's truly new in China <coughs> in the last <coughs> 20 years or so is the so-called denizens or uh, people on the internet <coughs> who, in spite of very serious censorship and controls on what is discussed uh, publicly on the internet, you know, there's a pretty lively, uh, to use a certain term, civil society uh, <coughs> uh, criticizing the regime, commenting on these scandals, the scandal in which poison milk killed a couple hundred kids a few years back, 
the scandal of a <coughs> uh, crash on the new high-speed train between Shanghai and Beijing, <coughs> which uh, in record time was <coughs> cleared up with no media coverage or little media coverage or bullshit media coverage. But nevertheless, you know, tens of thousands of people really openly expressed themselves about this scandalous <coughs> uh, cover-up of the media of these kinds of episodes. Or the <coughs> uh, earthquake out here in Western China about five or six years ago in which uh, <coughs> uh, no houses collapsed. The only thing that collapsed was the new public school, which had been built by a corrupt public, uh, uh, construction company, simply collapsed during school time, killed <coughs> quite a few kids. This was another scandal. There's just a whole series of things like this in addition to these basic <coughs> conditions in the factories. Now, let me just wrap this up and let's get into questions and answers. Um, <clears throat> as I said at the beginning, I think there's a fundamental regime crisis in China. It goes along with this legitimation crisis. Uh, and above all, <clears throat> the question of what to do about all of these revolts led by <clears throat> an ever-increasing number of working class strikes. And <clears throat> As I also mentioned, I think the nightmare of the regime is something like <clears throat> what happened in Poland in 1980-1981, where a, a, a massively supported working class <clears throat> mass strike uh, <clears throat> sort of breaks the foundations of the regime and ultimately, at the end of the 1980s, leads to the collapse of <clears throat> the regime and, in short order, of the entire <clears throat> Eastern Bloc. Comic-Con, the Soviet-dominated countries of Eastern Europe, and ultimately the Soviet Union itself. This is, this is above all, the scenario that has to be avoided. Now, what, what can be done <coughs> within the status quo <coughs> to <coughs> save the rule of the communist elite? <coughs> I would say, you know, there's the famous old line from <coughs> a 19th century uh, Italian novel, <coughs> Uh, it's a realization in the ruling class that everything has to change in order for things to remain the same. And I believe that is basically the scenario that a lot of <coughs> people at the top are thinking about. That <coughs> if it can be finessed, uh, an, a, <coughs> a transition to, at minimum, a free trade union movement would be the first order of business. because. The uh, <coughs> All China <coughs> Federation of Trade Unions, the ACFTU, is largely discredited in the eyes of workers. Now, there are some exceptions to that. There are uh, bureaucrats in the state trade union, which is the only one uh, who <coughs> are aware of these problems and talk about them fairly openly. And <coughs> Uh, you know, could be part of a renovation of the trade union movement. <coughs> um, there is the whole uh, <coughs> working class, pro-working class group of NGOs here in Hong Kong and in China, primarily in Guangdong province, who work with uh, worker dissidents and who also 
would advocate something like a shift to free trade unions and maybe even parliamentary democracy with you know, several other parties <coughs> being tolerated. Um, for example, one of the leaders of the 1989 student uprising in Beijing, Hong, Hong Dongfeng, is uh, today he's the head of a very interesting online site called China Labor Bulletin. That's L-A-B-O-U-R. It's a British established site. Very social democratic, as far as I know, actually funded by some of the Western European social democratic parties. <clears throat> but they provide very good coverage of a lot of stuff on the ground. And they're very much in favor of <clears throat> a free trade union-based new <clears throat> democratic regime on the mainland. <clears throat> um, so that's, I believe, is the core of the opposition. But as I mentioned a few minutes ago about all the netizens online, there's much larger constituency scattered around various parts of the country. Now, what do I think is going to happen? As uh, Yogi Berra once said, <coughs> prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. And uh, I think I've kind of been going through a thought experiment. I do not believe that that kind of transition is possible in China. Let's start with number one. A serious increase of wages in China would further undermine the so-called China price. That is, the price at which Chinese goods from the early 80s till recently have been able to really sweep all before on the world market. Already, because of rising wages, due to struggles here on the coast, uh, outsourcing of Chinese firms uh, to countries like Vietnam has become more and more common. Uh, Vietnam itself is in the process of its so-called doi mori, or opening, very similar to what the Chinese regime did. There have been three or four general strikes in Vietnam in the last 10 or 15 years. So. <clears throat> Uh, even Vietnam might become problematic. And beyond Vietnam, of course, is Bangladesh, which also has a very militant working class, primarily composed of women textile workers who have burned down uh, factories and burned down the houses of the bosses. <coughs> India, which has a burgeoning working class movement. And some people are even talking about a new uh, Indian Ocean Rim, <coughs> which would include new, newly developing countries in Africa, such as Kenya and Uganda. So <coughs> there's that kind of pressure on <coughs> what's going on in China itself. Now, it's very important to keep in mind that, <coughs> uh, <coughs> you know, I mentioned, I think it was in 2003, that foreign investment in China uh, became, you know, China became the number one uh, <coughs> place for uh, foreign direct investment passing the United States. But where did that investment come from? One might think it came from the United States <coughs> and Europe. Not really. <coughs> the number one investor in China is Taiwan. <coughs> and right behind Taiwan is Hong Kong, where <coughs> a lot of capital gets re recycled from the mainland to Hong Kong banks and goes, you know, it's, they're called round trippers. They just go right back into China as quote unquote foreign investment. Now, as you know, Hong Kong is now part of China, but it has this special status. 
So <coughs> those two places are really more important <coughs> taken together than any other <coughs> major capitalist country. Uh, it's also interesting that starting with the opening in the 1980s, China really drew on the Chinese diaspora around the world. There are billionaires in Indonesia, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in the United States, and so on, who sort of <coughs> felt the call of <coughs> the homeland and were major investors <coughs> in the new industries. Um, <coughs> but like I say, they're investors. They're looking at the bottom line. And if <coughs> uh, things really got out of hand and there was some attempt at a consumer-based consumer reorientation of the Chinese economy, uh, the China price would go even faster out the window. So in other words, there's a real contradiction in the calls of many liberals and Western Democrats for this kind of <coughs> reorientation because the very thing that it would require, higher wages, is what would undermine the ability of China to continue <coughs> its dynamism. Um, I guess Michael is standing up because I've talked too long. I'm only doing ready to do the camera mic out. Oh, OK, fine, fine. Um, <coughs> but I think I have talked too long. And um, I just want to make sure I have not left out anything important. But yeah, why don't we move to question and answer. And uh, <coughs> fine. Thank you very much. Okay. That was <laughs> How many questions do you want to take? Oh, at a time? Uh, one at a time. One at a time. Okay. My, my memory is not what it used to be. Hi. Uh, do you know anything about the role that China and the uh, Group of 77 are playing at the UN on the uh, Sustainable Development Goals project? Uh, <clears throat> off, off the top of my head, no. Uh, what 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 are you thinking about in terms of? There's a push to uh, have the 17 sustainable development goals that the governments of the world are trying to agree to. They're social, economic, and environmental, and it seems like China and the Group of 77 uh, think that uh, the trillions of dollars necessary to finance these goals will be coming miraculously from the private sector. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> well, I, I'm embarrassed that I haven't heard about this. I follow the Chinese economy pretty closely through a couple of sources, but that hasn't come up uh, <clears throat> as such. But uh, along these lines, as <clears throat> some of you probably know, in the last uh, few months, China has established uh, <clears throat> Uh, two development banks, uh, one the Asian, Asian Investment Development Bank, I think it's called, uh, <clears throat> to which it invited all countries uh, in the world <clears throat> to participate. And <clears throat> the United States was a lone holdout uh, and, and to the point where even Britain and Germany signed on. It was just a tremendous embarrassment to the United States. Uh, I believe this bank is going to be initially capitalized with about $200 billion, <clears throat> and this will follow up on very substantial Chinese investments abroad <clears throat> in Africa, first of all, and Latin America, secondly. I mean, the uh, Chavez government in Venezuela was a major recipient 
of Chinese loans <coughs> until recently. Unfortunately, it seems that those loans are not going to be repaid and probably <coughs> not uh, <coughs> in many other countries. Let me just throw in one other thing, uh, riffing on your question. <coughs> the, uh, the boom in China, <laughs> the boom in China was a tremendous boost to all raw materials producers all over the world. And so countries from Brazil and Peru uh, <clears throat> to Australia uh, up until recently were <clears throat> um, <clears throat> exporting all kinds of raw materials and energy uh, <clears throat> to China itself. And of course, as China goes into the hole, uh, <clears throat> they go into the hole too. And, and one thing I should mention as a little background, it's not exactly background, is that there is a world depression underway. <clears throat> uh, there's a general deflationary push going on in all the major capitalist centers, Europe, the United States, and Japan. The central banks have been printing money <clears throat> hand over fist uh, ever since 2008, and it hasn't done any good. And all it's done is increase real estate prices and kept boosted the stock market. There's very little real direct investment. And <clears throat> that's another reason, I think, that any program of reform, like as I outlined, in China isn't going to go very far. But just coming back to what you said, the <clears throat> uh, way in which <clears throat> all kinds of raw, raw material producing countries uh, really experience a boom along with China's boom is definitely over. <clears throat> so I'm not sure what they're talking about at the UN or the group of 77, but <clears throat> I think that's the broader situation. Uh, I think that's... <laughs> uh, yeah, Could you go further into uh, your take of the relations between the United States and China at this point, at this uh, point. in terms of political economy? And secondly, you know, I've been familiar with the national security debates of China now going back to the 80s where Chinese admirals, you know, fantasized out there, you know, their zones of control. And now, of course, we have serious conflict going on in the South China Sea uh, between all the ASEAN powers down there and up near uh, right. Japan and South Korea. What, do you, what is your take on this? Okay. <clears throat> well, ever since I've been involved in Marxist radical politics, uh, there have always been uh, <clears throat> groups around headlining their newspapers, uh, bourgeoisie pushes for war. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> I, I'm being somewhat facetious. but. But in fact, I think in the current world situation, if we look at the global, overall global situation, it's probably closer to that than ever before in the sense that we have growing conflict between the United States and its allies in Asia, above all in the South China Sea, but not only in the South China Sea. I'm sure you know that Japan has just decided to uh, put, uh, you know, build up its uh, so-called 
self-defense forces, make them into a real army, uh, and all these other countries, you know, down here in the South China Sea, there are nine different countries, ranging, ranging from the Sultan of Brunei to the Philippines, who have claims on <coughs> uh, different parts of the South China Sea that may or may not have oil under them. But China is way ahead of everybody else in <coughs> uh, trying to move in there, develop it. Now, <coughs> very recently, <coughs> as many of you undoubtedly know, uh, Vietnam <coughs> is allowing the United States Navy <coughs> to use the bases on its coast as part of the defense in the South China Sea. So here we have uh, bases like Da Nang that were built by the United States back in the 1960s, being hand, not handed over, but <coughs> you know, open to American military ships as part of a general security move. <laughs> Uh, and then <coughs> we step back more broadly. There's <coughs> a growing crisis in Ukraine with Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the first American troops uh, just arrived in the Baltic states. <coughs> I think 500 of them uh, <coughs> as a message to Russia about its whatever expansion plans it might have. Uh, I think <coughs> nobody is particularly fooled by that because Everybody remembers Danzig, now called Gdansk in 1939, and its mutual security pacts with the West that didn't really amount to much. <coughs> uh, what am I leaving out? Well, of course, then there's the Middle East, where <coughs> things are even more problematic for American foreign policy. So my sense is that, getting back to China, China is <coughs> and will be the number one regional power in Asia. Uh, it's tightly uh, bound, <coughs> tightly involved with all these other countries that I mentioned. For example, both South Korea and Japan have over 4,000 uh, firms operating in China. <coughs> so they're not about to uh, ramp up uh, <coughs> the rhetoric too high uh, <coughs> against China. And on the other hand, periodically, as I point out in my chronology, uh, the regime has been skillful in using anti-Japanese sentiment to uh, <coughs> uh, cool out working class agitation, as in the big strikes in the Japanese firms in 2010. So <coughs> now you know, the United States is <coughs> uh, carrying out intelligence flights over the South China Sea. Uh, one in China protests, and the United States says we're just, uh, you know, this is international airspace. One, one would wonder what would happen if uh, a Chinese fleet was in the Caribbean uh, carrying out <coughs> uh, intelligence flights uh, over Texas, but we'll, we'll see about that in the future. But I don't know, does that answer your question? Yes, I'd like to know more about what you expect in the future. I understand you, you lay out a reformist possibility, and then you say, well, it's really very unlikely. Well, what is likely? I understand the boom has this business, this boom was very impressive, but there are certain bottlenecks, including the massive pollution and so forth. Uh, the labor shortages you're beginning to mention, including labor shortages of skilled workers, which is a separate category. 
So, and the worldwide stagnation is going on. Yep. So, what is most likely? Well, as they say, I'm glad you asked that question. I wanted to, I, as I was trying to think my way through the future scenarios, I was focused more on <clears throat> what uh, a reformist perspective might be. But as I said myself, as I said earlier, <clears throat> I don't think that perspective really has much uh, legroom. <clears throat> so what's the alternative? Let's get back to thinking in the international <clears throat> scene. As I said, you know, we're going into a depression. There's deflation everywhere. Um, <clears throat> this is really going to be big. And in such an environment, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> China will necessarily be hit uh, very hard. It's already been hit hard since 2008. And <clears throat> my feeling is, even though so far, uh, the regime has been successful in keeping protests focused on local authorities and local capitalists that <clears throat> uh, at some point uh, the working class, you know, as how did Marx put it, the working class is compelled by its situation to <clears throat> develop into a class for itself and move to a more national and international perspective. Now, <clears throat> This will be a long and rocky road. I, <clears throat> but I do believe that uh, <clears throat> given the general nature of the crisis, the fact that, and I didn't want to get into any heavy theoretical lifting, but <clears throat> because we are in a period that <clears throat> some people characterize as the epoch of imperialist decay or the epoch of capitalist decadence, that's a thesis that I share, there, there, there never was room for a new world power comparable to the world powers who came on <clears throat> stream in the late 19th century, and above all, Germany. Germany is another favorite of the Chinese think tanks as some, a model you know, to understand continuity and discontinuity. Why? Germany was an outlier <clears throat> that developed into a world power and pushed its way into the world dominated by France and, the United, and France and uh, <coughs> Britain. But unfortunately, that period is over. There is no room <coughs> for <coughs> a new world power except by the downsizing of other world powers. And so the Asian miracle <coughs> of the last 40 years, <coughs> let's keep in mind, in 1960, 5% of world production was in East Asia. Today, 35% of world production is in East Asia. But unlike in the 19th century, when the working class as a whole was growing, this rise here has been accompanied by the hollowing out of American and European industry, not to mention the sort of paralysis of different developing regimes in what used to be called the third world, now called emer emerging markets, uh, where <clears throat> their very modest industrial growth up to the 50s and 60s was largely canceled out by an avalanche of cheap Chinese goods. I mean, I'll give one example of that. Uh, in northeastern Nigeria, <clears throat> where the Boko Haram uh, movement was really advancing, <clears throat> uh, 
uh, Northeast Nigeria used to be full of textile mills. And what happened to those textile mills? They were wiped out by cheaper textiles from China. <coughs> and, and one could go down the list of different countries where that's happened. So broadly speaking, I <coughs> don't want to sound rhetorical, but the old slogan, socialism or barbarism, seems to be made more apt today than it's ever been in the past, namely that <coughs> the crisis of capitalism on a world scale, which is a crisis of value production, for those of you who have read Marx's Capital, has to be <coughs> uh, solved either by <coughs> some kind of serious world revolution or it will be solved by a <coughs> depression and attack on the working class of which the last 40 years have been just the foretaste. So <coughs> basically, I think things are posed in that way. That is, the Chinese working class, which has shown itself to be quite combative on a local level, I think will evolve to more national coordination. There's already a network of militants scattered around the country, and many people are in touch through the internet. But you know, it's nothing yet <coughs> to get terribly excited about. There, but there are signs of <coughs> uh, workers, not to mention people um, sort of excluded from the working class, the 270 million migrant workers, who are beginning to see that they have interests as a class, as a whole, and <coughs> hopefully in not too distant future, we'll start to move in that way. Well, that leads to the immediate question, what, what signs are there that the Chinese working class is acquiring a more national, if not international, consciousness as opposed to just a, lo a local one? And uh, putting it somewhat differently, suppose you were an advisor to the Chinese ruling class uh, and you've, pointed, you've claimed that they have no, they, they can't continue in the old way. And I think you've correctly argued that they can't turn to reformism or parliamentarism that, that would destroy them in the course of, uh, of trying to do so. So what, what should they do? I think one, one, one thing they, they, they must try to do is step up nationalism in order to keep the working class divided from international allies and so forth. And maybe some of this militarism that you mentioned is aimed in that direction. Right. <clears throat> okay. Um, <clears throat> Let's see, if I were an advisor to the Chinese ruling class. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> well, um, I, I think you touched on a number of things that I, I, would, I would also uh, emphasize. Um, <clears throat> I didn't mention along the way, part of the German model, which has been very important, at least in Chinese think tanks, I don't know to what extent it gets to people who are actually making policy is the post-World War II German model of uh, works councils, not to be confused with workers' councils. Workers' councils were created by the Russian and German revolutions in the, in the teens and 20s. Works councils were created after World War II where workers in big factories got you know, seats on the board of directors and some power over the management of the plant. And <clears throat> I believe 
you know, have even been successful in certain cases of stopping outsourcing and things like that. So <clears throat> that would be kind of the enlightened <clears throat> approach. Uh, <clears throat> but as I said, and I presume you would agree, there's not really room for that kind of reform on a large scale. <clears throat> um, I, I really think the regime is stuck between a rock and a hard place. That is, they're, they, yes, they, they can ramp up nationalism as they already have. I mean, it's not an accident that some of the most militant big strikes of the last 15 years have been <coughs> at Japanese firms. You know, it's always easy to turn on <coughs> uh, anti-Japanese sentiment <coughs> in China where memories of the Japanese occupation <coughs> are still very vivid. Um, so I, I really think that uh, militarism and, you know, I mean, a, a carrot and stick uh, dynamic with uh, <coughs> not too much carrot and <coughs> more stick uh, connected to militarist confrontation, if not out-and-out out expansion, <coughs> is probably the way to go. But I, I realize that's just a very sketchy answer, and <coughs> sketchy in the same way as my... Uh, <coughs> now, as for your question about signs that the Chinese working class is getting more uh, aware of its national situation, <coughs> um, of course, as we know, the regime is extremely aware <coughs> of the, the, this possibility and this danger. For in, in 2008, when the crisis hit in the West and suddenly Chinese exports dropped off a cliff, uh, hundreds of millions of primarily uh, migrant workers down here in, <coughs> along the coast, but above all in Guangdong province, were sent home to their villages and uh, the regime said, uh, while, you're back, while you're back there, why don't you stay there? But uh, <clears throat> that didn't really happen. They, they managed to come back to the coastal areas and <clears throat> continue to be this <clears throat> migrant class that takes jobs here and there. Um, that, you know, without going into details, it's very interesting and hardly surprising, ultimately, that uh, <clears throat> a lot of these migrant workers uh, act very much like migrant workers everywhere or immigrants that we know from American history where uh, people are very much uh, in touch with other people from their town and <coughs> uh, sort of tend to flock together in that way. Uh, <coughs> I don't think that really particularly helps acquiring an overall class consciousness. But I, uh, I, I have a hard time believing that given the mobility of people around the country, that there's not some pretty serious generalized awareness of <clears throat> the totality of the crisis and uh, <clears throat> thoughts along the lines of doing something more, more breaking out of the local level. Now, <clears throat> down here in Shenzhen and Hong Kong, as I mentioned, are all kinds of uh, <clears throat> nonprofits, um, who are deeply involved, I mean, above all in Shenzhen and more broadly in <clears throat> the industrial areas in Guangdong province, uh, with helping workers uh, <clears throat> you know, get off the ground in terms of uh, an independent <clears throat> uh, union or independent, some kind of uh, 
reform and flexibilization of the old union bureaucracy, the all-China Federation of Trade Unions. Now, I think that is another card <coughs> for the regime to play for a while. That is, uh, if not necessarily uh, <coughs> giving up the monopoly of <coughs> the, uh, the statewide trade union, at least uh, going along with these bureaucrats. I mean, what, what China really needs uh, <coughs> at some level, from the point of view of the working class and from a reformist point of view, is a Lequilenza or a Lula, someone who can really <coughs> uh, mobilize for what would ultimately be a <coughs> reform of the trade union movement and an opening up of the political situation, however problematic that would be. Uh, <coughs> so far, uh, to my knowledge, nothing like that <coughs> has really emerged. But I would say that this area here is where some broader class conception is most likely to appear. That's kind of my hypothesis. Hey, Lauren. Hi. So a lot was made in the US of China and Chinese banks or owning a huge chunk of the US debt from 2008 yeah. and on. So that didn't enter yet into what you were saying. So I'd like you to talk about some more and how does that play out in terms of potentials, all different directions. And also, the corporation, uh, there are, aside from Walmart, in addition to Walmart, there are also other US corporations all over China. So how does that play out in terms of intersect with what I just asked? Um, <clears throat> yes. I, I'm there are many things I didn't talk about. <clears throat> I was counting on the question and answer period to bring up different topics. Let me just briefly touch on the second part of your question. Uh, for example, much uh, was uh, said about <clears throat> the unionization of Walmart China at a, you know, when, where Walmart doesn't allow unions anywhere else. Uh, <clears throat> but in fact, um, and this was done uh, under the auspices of the all China, <clears throat> all China Federation of Trade Unions. If you look at the contract that Walmart signed, what is really at the center of it is uh, that the union is committed, as they are committed almost everywhere, to promoting harmony <coughs> in the enterprise. And <coughs> um, well, I think that was in a footnote. But you know, the main part was just all about, you know. <coughs> Reality. This is the role in 80 or 90 percent of confrontations that the the, la the national labor national labor federation plays. You know, it's ultimately there <coughs> to <coughs> keep workers in line. But as I said, there are exceptions to that. So, um, <coughs> as for broader U.S. investment, <coughs> yes, there's a lot of it, <coughs> but not as much as <coughs> from China from. Taiwan, Hong Kong, et cetera. But one thing that's very interesting that's often overlooked in the discussions of the foreign investment in China is that China itself gets a very small fraction of <coughs> what they call the value added. Uh, for example, in the case of Foxconn and its ties to Apple, uh, the <coughs> ultimate profits that accrue to <coughs> uh, China, Chinese firms, et cetera, 
is a fraction of what goes back to the home country. I mean, the, the, one of the, I think it was uh, Honda's slogan in China, or one of the other big Japanese firms was, R&D in Japan, production in China, sales in the West. And <clears throat> that, that is the model for a lot of the foreign investment. So uh, <clears throat> it, it's, it's not so much like uh, some of the classic examples we know from history of foreign investment really building up some <clears throat> independent industry that can later be nationalized. I don't want to go too far with that. Clearly, there's a lot of it. But <clears throat> it's uh, far less beneficial to China than is generally <clears throat> thought. Now, getting to the dollar holdings of the Bank of China. This is a <clears throat> favorite uh, <clears throat> theme of mine. That's really an albatross. Uh, <clears throat> I think at its peak, it was about $4 trillion. Now, <clears throat> the only problem is <clears throat> it forces the Chinese regime to <clears throat> keep a very tight control over its currency, which, of course, is um, <clears throat> you know, beneficial in many ways. If, if the renminbi, as it's known <clears throat> internationally, uh, becomes, uh, see how does this work? Uh, <clears throat> I think the current exchange rate is close to seven renminbi to the dollar. But <clears throat> if, <clears throat> it be, if it became uh, eight or nine renminbi to the dollar, the dollar holdings of China would become that much less valuable to the Chinese. It would be essentially a devaluation of all those holdings. So, uh, <clears throat> and the United States has been through this cycle several times. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, it had huge debts abroad in Germany and Japan, above all. And in 1973-74, the United States said, thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> those debts, of course, representing massive imports to the United States, uh, we're devaluing. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to stick it to you for 30 or 40% of what you thought of as your holdings. In the mid-1980s, the United States did the same thing to Japan where Japan had accumulated vast holdings of American treasury bills as well as income from sales to the United States. And the United States had the Plaza Agreement where they sat down on one moodless night and forced <coughs> Japan to accept uh, a revaluation of the yen of something on the order of 20 or 30 percent. When uh, <coughs> our old friend Tim Geithner, former Secretary of the Treasury, went to China a few years ago, uh, and he spoke at uh, one of the big universities in Beijing. He was, he was pounded by questions about, is America going to force China to revalue? <coughs> and <laughs> and Geithner said, don't worry. We have all your interests at heart. And there are people there who knew very well about the examples I just cited, just burst out laughing. So, so it's very clear above all to the Bank of China <clears throat> and to broad parts of the Chinese people that this, these dollar holdings are really, uh, at best, uh, a two-edged sword. Now, on the other hand, <clears throat> let me just wind up by saying uh, the central government in China just poured something on the order of $800 billion into the stock market. 
stock market fell by 40% in the late June and early July, and <coughs> uh, the <coughs> uh, government intervened with both feet and uh, brought it back up to about, uh, I think, 40% of what of the fall. If you got into the stock market a year ago, you're still way ahead. But anybody who jumped in during the frenzy, like the dot-com frenzy in the US in 1999, 2000, you, know, you lost your shirt. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> so there's a limit to <coughs> the amount that <coughs> China, the central government, can really put into these kinds of things. On the other hand, with these new development banks, the extent that they actually get off the ground as the world goes into the tank, uh, they do have <coughs> money to play around with. So uh, that's another thing to keep your eye on. Let me, let me just throw in about <coughs> Chinese develop, uh, investment in Africa, which is really quite something. <coughs> uh, I believe it's in Mali, <coughs> where China bought some huge part of the country <coughs> for its uh, manganese or you know, one of those key met, uh, <coughs> metal, metals or minerals for its own development. And it's done similar things in very productive agricultural areas of Africa. Uh, <coughs> it was a few years ago that South Korea uh, was on the verge of buying about half of the island of Madagascar when <coughs> that deal was finally vetoed, <coughs> I don't know, under whose pressure. Uh, and China has you know, been trying to do the same thing with its, with its national, with its uh, dollar holdings and other holdings. The other thing, let me just wind up. Uh, <coughs> China has been trying to diversify out of the dollar exactly for the reasons I mentioned. And now it just has come out that their gold holdings have greatly increased in the last <coughs> five or six years. So. <coughs> That's another card that remains to be played. But we have two more questions. Um, oh, you're, you're still more? Thanks for the discussion. I'll, I'll um, ask you to, to shorten it so that way, you know, all of us can ask questions. Uh, one is, uh, so the proletarian uh, movement is is bigger than the regime itself, at some sort, right? right? Um, it seems to me that the work, the working class in China, has uh, the audacity to erupt a strike, and. Absolutely. And it shows that the working class is basically um, militant uh, 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 above the, um, the, bu the bureaucracy that the, the so-called Communist Party uh, claims that they have, even though they have the capital power, but that the overall uh, social, uh, you know, sh social um, leverage is pretty much fragile as it's known. So I was wondering if, if you could discuss more on the on the proletarianization of workers in China. Also, the, what took place in Hong Kong last year. I mean, how how did uh, how can you place the the, the uprising in Hong Kong uh, along with the uh, the 
the, uh, the, the proletarian militancy of the workers in China. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, <clears throat> again, uh, right, the, I, I think about the situation in China some, to some extent with the various foreign models that I've studied and learned about. And I do think uh, uh, South Korea in the late 1980s is a good example of what could happen. The South Korean working class was very repressed, very fragmented, but it was growing <coughs> through the 70s into the 80s. And <coughs> with no organization, <coughs> you know, there were a couple of phony unions tolerated by the regime. Uh, and there were, this is very interesting, <coughs> this is an aside, uh, a lot of students, like in the West, uh, in the 60s, in the 70s, and 80s, got factory jobs. And unlike in the, fact in the West, those students actually had a real impact <coughs> on the development of a working class movement underground and uh, surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, through a lot of churches in, China, in South Korea. Then in 1987, all hell broke loose out of nowhere. <coughs> 3,000 factories went on strike in a very short time. It was a, it was a, it was a strike wave like 1905 in Russia or <clears throat> other strike waves we can think about. So my feeling is, in spite of <clears throat> the current fragmentation and local, localization of the Chinese working class, that something like this could erupt very suddenly. And, and, and above all, one has to pay attention to the political situation. In South Korea, it was the run-up to the 1988 Olympics, which sort of gave legs to the democratic opposition there that had an influence on the workers. It didn't just happen like that out of nowhere. <clears throat> and similarly in China, for reasons we probably can't completely foresee, but in, you know, what, who was it, Tocqueville, who said, the most dangerous moment in the life of a repressive regime is when it starts to reform itself. And that's very much <clears throat> on the minds of the Chinese elite <clears throat> now. So any number of missteps could lead to that kind of a reaction. But on the other hand, one has to be realistic and see that there are a lot of obstacles to that. <clears throat> As for Hong Kong. Uh, this may be controversial, but I see the movement in Hong Kong more along the lines of the different color revolutions <coughs> that have happened all over the world in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, <coughs> I think it's very much in the continuity, to some extent, with the Tiananmen student movement of 1989, with the Statue of Liberty and <coughs> demands for democracy and things like that. <coughs> Um, I was very surprised when I was in Hong Kong to find out that the people of Hong Kong, including apparently workers in Hong Kong, don't think much of the mainlanders <coughs> uh, <coughs> with whom they you know, fused in 1997 because <coughs> they're kind of uh, <coughs> under the uh, pressure of large groups of people who come over the border, it, you know, it's hardly a border at this point, but still they are separate entities and some, at some level and just buy up everything inside and 
drive up prices in Hong Kong, and so on. So, so <coughs> um, I, I, I really don't see much future <coughs> for that kind of movement in terms of the kind of movement I'm talking about, the possibility of real worker revolt. I don't think too many, I could be wrong, but I don't think too many working people in Hong Kong uh, got swept up in it. It was more of a student movement. It was more a movement for democracy, whatever that means. And of course, it means something. <clears throat> but it's, I think it's very much in the within the limits of the kind of reform that I think will might be attempted on the mainland, but will not really produce any positive results. It's just my hypothesis. Okay, hi. Um, I'm wondering in all of these uh, uprisings of, of workers in the, in the Chinese economy over these past decades, and you're covering an enormous amount of, of territory, are there differences in the responses of, of women workers uh, and ma male workers? Are there differences as far as what kind of work people are doing based on gender? Could you talk a little bit about that? <coughs> Um, <clears throat> I, I mentioned once before that I really got into studying the <clears throat> Asian model uh, and worker, <clears throat> worker movements in the Asian model while living in South Korea. And one of the things that was really impressed on me was the crucial role of women workers in the first stage of the working class revolt of the 70s and 80s because Korea's first <clears throat> step was towards light industry and above all textiles that employed primarily <coughs> women recruited from the countryside. And they carried out some of the first militant strikes and led, laid the foundations for a later, broader class rebellion in heavy industry. Now, China, sorry? No, like happened here, like happened in France, like happened in many different places. You know, light industry is usually the starting point and <coughs> light industry <coughs> where women can be <coughs> massively employed. I'm not suggesting they can't work in heavy industry as well, but I mean that's historically how it's worked out. Um, <coughs> in China, of course, it's a little different because China started from a base of heavy industry up in the northeast and <coughs> um, on the other hand, Hong Kong, which did have textiles and did have toy manufacture, and as far as I know, still does, and other light industries, more women were employed there. Uh, as for Guangdong province, uh, <coughs> in the post-reform period, uh, i.e. since the early 1980s, I'm not aware of women playing <coughs> quite the central role that they played, say, in South Korea. but. On the other hand, I, you know, there are many cases, and I've only been able to study some of them. Uh, <clears throat> certainly, there are plenty of uh, small and medium-sized firms where women are half or more of the workforce. And in some of those strikes, they, of course, <clears throat> played a role. Uh, but <clears throat> beyond that, I, I really can't say. I didn't treat women. So 
sorry. I, I grew up in Taiwan, and I came to this country to study in graduate school. But I never know, learned any communist thought at all. But then for the past two years, I retired a long time. But then I have several friends. They learned so much on the Marxism. They, we all came to, from Taiwan. We started to learn. And I know from Mao's era that the first slogan he said is serve the people. people all the people should be equal. That he did that. And then there's no uh, prostitution that's different from Taiwan. Because after Mao's era, there's erratic the prostitution. So, but most people, the, he, he increased the literate people. So all people, but they can go to have education and then, uh, you know, that sort of, that's why intellectual class has to go to the uh, farm to work, to learn how they are, you know, they labor work will help you to learn. So current president Xi Jinping, he was, when he was a teenager, he went to the farm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> if you want to read about uh, China under Mao, I would recommend a book I just recently read called Lost Generation. That's about the 17 million young people from the cities who were sent into the countryside at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, and many of them, most of them, forced to stay there for 10 years. Uh, <clears throat> the way you describe it doesn't sound very much like <clears throat> what this book describes. They were uh, really, found, the peasants found them quite useless uh, and didn't <coughs> uh, integrate with them at all.
it's true that colleges and schools did remain open in the countryside during the Cultural Revolution. I was talking about the universities and the cities, which more or less closed down. Uh, <clears throat> so the integration of the rustified uh, young people from the cities from 66 to 76 was not very successful. And as I also mentioned, when they finally were allowed to return to the cities, they became a lost generation. Just <clears throat> sort of missing in action in the changes in <clears throat> uh, Chinese society. Now, as for uh, <clears throat> the rest of the impact of Mao's policies on <clears throat> uh, the rural population, uh, I think you should take a look also at the Great Leap Forward. And there's a lot of debate about that, but there's no debate about the fact that it basically caused massive famines in large parts of China and something between 20 and 40 million people died in those families. Yes, okay, fine. Uh, but, uh, oh. Sorry? Absolutely. I mean, I, I would be dubious about anyone who would write about China at that, in that depth without knowing Chinese. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I'm sorry, I have a bit different view of Mao's role than you do, and I, I really would encourage you to look into some of the things that I mentioned, but, uh, is there, oh, sorry, oh, wait a second, I want to ask a question about nationalism, but I do want to make one comment about that interchange. Um, I taught in China from 1977 to 1983. I was there for the first test that was given to college students when the colleges reopened. And for the first four years after they reopened the elite schools in the cities that had been closed, everybody who passed the test, both for undergraduate and graduate degrees, were that lost generation. And those people are very, very much the elite of China today. I mean, they were the people who came in, there was no limit on their age. You could take either undergraduate or graduate entry exam, regardless of how old you were. So a lot of people who missed those 10 years, who were especially the children of elite, uh, took the test and passed the test and either went to college or went straight to graduate school and then were became the cream of the crop uh, because after 1979, you, there was an age limit put on it. So you had to be a college-age kid to take the college entrance exam. But those first three years, 77, 78, and 79, uh, there were many, many, many people who had spent time in the countryside who took the exam, went to school, and became part of the Chinese elite. Anyway, nationalism. Um, you mentioned Japan, and I guess my question is a follow-up on Mitchell's about um, the dollar, the perception of your average person on the street um, I haven't been following China for many, many years, so I'm just like an observer at this point. Um, but I do know that there, because I read and watch the, uh, the TV, the Chinese news, uh, that your average person on the street is m sort of much more savvy about international economics. And that response that they got, they gave to Tim Geithner uh, about U.S. Uh, policy, whatever, um, mm -hmm. 
is, a, is an indication of that, and it's not just people at elite colleges. I think your average person on the street uh, thinks about the U.S. as not only the place where China has its, I mean, that, own, that China owns their treasuries, but it's also the place that has encircled them militarily and is opposing their, so, their peaceful rise, so to speak, and that is not going to allow China to be the dominant power in East Asia, and the U.S. wants to continue to be the sole superpower and all of that. So the question I have is blame. You know, when the market collapsed in China last week or a couple weeks ago, Apparently, most people on the street who lost money or lost their pension dollars or whatever blamed the party. It's not, I mean, like, I don't know who would be blamed here. We would probably blame Wall Street if the market collapsed here. But in China, they seem to be blaming the party for not regulating the market. And that's, you know, so when the party stepped in and spent 80 billion or whatever they spent to prop the market up, that was expected. And, and, and so I, the, my question about blame is, what do you think, having followed it more recently, about uh, the potential for those two things to be linked in the minds of Chinese people and for the party, those two things, meaning the, the treasury, the collapse of the world uh, economy on one hand, and U.S. government opposition to any rise of China and insistence on being the sole superpower. Those, linking those two things and the ability of the Chinese party to utilize that uh, to keep people n focused on blaming U.S. or foreign or international economy rather than its internal structure. Okay, well, <clears throat> just to deal briefly with <clears throat> uh, the first part of your... <clears throat> comments and questions. Uh, the picture, I, I do know that some of the people who were rusticated in 1966-68 were able to resume their studies. But uh, according to this book, maybe this book is flawed, uh, a lot of them <clears throat> were already too old to take the uh, university entrance exam when they returned. Uh, <clears throat> and According to this book, a lot of them wound up in sort of the interstices of the urban economy uh, <clears throat> with no clear uh, path. But <clears throat> it's, it's an empirical question. I'm happy to hear another point of view. Uh, as for, I mean, and I'm also glad to hear that people on the street in China are <clears throat> quite aware of the whole question of the dollar and dollar holdings of the Bank of China. <clears throat> Um, let's see. Now, as part of a, I quite agree with you that the United States is has been pursuing a policy of encirclement of China. <clears throat> There's no question that, as I said before, uh, <clears throat> you know, if we think of uh, <clears throat> a Chinese fleet uh, off the coast of Puerto Rico and uh, intelligence flights over Guantanamo, uh, we, we can sort of see an analogy, or the impact that would have in the United States, we can see an analogy to a lot of the <clears throat> confrontation that has been building in the South China Sea. If you look on my website, on the <clears throat> at the URL that's there, you'll find an article from about 10 years back, 
which interestingly was translated into Chinese and published in a party journal, uh, without my knowledge, but <coughs> uh, called The Great Game Two, the US on the borders of China and Russia. This is something that ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc has been a major, <coughs> one can almost trace out all the moves that the United States has made from the Baltics through Eastern Europe, through the Middle East <coughs> to China in terms of a strategy above all, I would say aimed at number one, keeping the, <coughs> the what are they called, the great world island, that's an old term from geopolitics, off balance, keeping, Brzezinski uh, wrote a great book, <laughs> a very informative book, I should say, called The Grand Chessboard about 30 years ago, in which he said very explicitly, we got, here's, here's our problem. We're a declining power. What do we do? We've got to keep all the main <coughs> potential rivals on <coughs> the Eurasian continent off balance and at each other, you know, you know, off balance relative to each other. Who are these powers? Europe, Russia, China, <coughs> Indonesia, and India. I believe that was it. And <coughs> the United States, again, if one follows that logic, you can see the United States has been <coughs> you know, pulling strings wherever possible uh, to keep <coughs> that part of the world off balance. So I have no argument with <coughs> your comments about uh, the, the encirclement of China. I mean, it's, it's definitely... Uh, <coughs> I believe it's part of the strategy of dealing with the crisis in the West, you know, just in the same way that the buildup of NATO <coughs> in uh, Eastern Europe relative to the Ukraine crisis or new NATO presence in the Baltic countries is part of the same strategy. So uh, <coughs> in other words, the crisis on a world scale hits all countries, but uh, in the West and in the U.S. in particular, it will not be a merely economic crisis. It will be, there is a whole military edge to it. And <coughs> yeah, so on that, I agree with you. Lauren, I think that's, a, that's pretty, that was a great presentation. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you all for sitting through it. And uh, Lauren, do you want to say your uh, websites and uh, your... Well, uh, 